Hello, friends. Welcome to the Feed Learning People podcast, a podcast where fellow humans share their vulnerable moments and how they navigated sticky situations throughout their careers. We've all been there, so let's learn from each other. My name is Jesse, and today I'm here with Catrice Munson. Hi, Catrice. Thanks hey, for doing this podcast. Uh, let's go ahead and get straight to it. Can you scan your resume? I started way back in the day at a law firm, did that for three years, um, then jumped into CBS doing labor relations, did that for 16 years, then pivoted from labor relations at CBS into diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then left that and left CBS or Viacom CBS and started Right Size Media, which is where I am today. Awesome. So we're going to talk about Right Size Media later in today's podcast. I didn't know that you worked at a law firm first. Yes. How was it? I'll be the first to say that the traditional practice of law was not my Mm -hmm. goal or what I aspired to do, Mm -hmm. but it was an incredible experience. It gave me a lot of insight and good practice into writing, Mm -hmm. researching, but that traditional law firm experience was not for me, and I learned that relatively quickly. But I recommend it for people who, you know, who are really passionate about litigation and transactional law. Um, but yeah, good experience, but not one I could do for the rest of my life. Yeah. What What do you mean by traditional law? Like, so arguing? Yeah. Lawyers, I think argue. Yeah, that's not, you're not totally off base. I uh-huh, mean, I like uh-huh. to think arguing and advocating for your client. Okay. Um, But you do. It can be contentious. It can be, you know, conflict driven. And there's two parties often um, when you're talking about practicing law. There's different sides of a case or a Mm -hmm. situation. And so I realized that I liked sort of closing the deal, facilitating, mediating, getting to agreement So I wanted to find a way to do that more often than actually being, you know, squarely on one side of something or another. Um, Yeah. So that, you know, but some people love that. I have, you know, colleagues and classmates that love the argument, you know, and you need that. I just that wasn't for me necessarily. Did you know that I tried to go into law in the beginning? I took the LSATs. I got like I got the lowest score ever. I think I got like a 140 or something like that. I, could, I did not get accepted into any law school. You know, it was bad. Oh, well, I do. I just said to somebody recently um, that works with us on our team who's interested in, in law school and I, you need great lawyers. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love people who are interested in the law. There's policy. There's so much you can do with a law degree. So it, it's not necessarily about the typical um, image or you know, role of a lawyer. There's so much you can do yeah. with it. So it's never yeah. too late, Jesse. You can always go I back. don't know. I feel it's too it's too cutthroat for me. I'm like, I can't think on my feet like that sometimes. So yeah. uh, I would I would do training instead. That's well you're I very do. good at training. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you, Catrice. So labor relations, you did that for quite some time. What does labor relations mean for those who don't really understand yeah. that? It is one of those jobs or titles that you find yourself often explaining because people are like, they kind of get it, but not necessarily so. And I didn't know. I never thought, oh, I'm going to be a labor relations executive. Uh, Mm -hmm. But really what it looks like, particularly in the entertainment industry, is negotiating contracts, 
doing advisory work. So the contract negotiation for me was representing CBS um, in contract negotiations with the Writers Guild, SAG-AFTRA, the Directors Guild, uh, the Below the Line crew unions. So really advocating on behalf of CBS and its business units we would submit proposals about wages, benefits, working conditions, and then the unions, of course, would submit their proposals. We would do that every three or four years and negotiate over those working conditions for people across the industry. So that's okay. one aspect of labor relations. The other aspect is particularly with the studios and the productions that we had is advising those producers, accountants, lawyers on what was in those agreements that we negotiated. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Salaries and things like that. So I noticed a a couple of career changes in your career, Catrice. So you went from labor relations to diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, What influenced your decision to go from one thing to the other? Yeah, you know, I didn't necessarily think at the time that it was this huge leap. But it's Mm -hmm. a question that people ask me over and over again in terms of it seemed... On paper, I think it seems like it was a big pivot, a big shift. But really, Mm -hmm. I did stuff related to diversity and inclusion when I was a labor relations executive. Because what that is about, right, is access and opportunity. So um, creating additional ways that new people can come into the industry, Mm. get into a union, whatever the case may be. So I had worked on some initiatives, just not that wasn't my singular focus. So and then the skills that you get during labor negotiations, you are presenting your arguments. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of it again. Advocacy is the, the theme that I like. Okay. But you do okay. you you you're presenting arguments. You're trying to convince mm-hmm. people sometimes, you know, of a certain goal or it just gives me anxiety sometimes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it used honestly. It used. Uh-huh. It took me a long time to be comfortable with it. Yeah, it wasn't okay. something that came to me naturally. I actually don't like speaking in front of people. And then sometimes you're in with rooms of people that you're having to speak up and advocate, argue, convince people, um, but c- bring consensus. And a lot of that is part of diversity, equity, and inclusion work is getting people mm. to think about things in a different way, right? Sometimes people have different goals. Sometimes it's similar, but they have different ways in which to get to those goals. And... I think a lot of it is about listening to people, um, figuring out why, how they think, why they think mm-hmm. a certain way. And so a lot of those skills that I gained in negotiations for all those years do actually apply to diversity, equity, inclusion work. But it was mm-hmm. a shift. It definitely was a pivot. I had been doing labor negotiations and labor for 16 years at CBS and then a couple of years at the law firm. So like everyone, I think you get that yearning Mm -hmm. to try something different when the position opened it was also a new position that had not been uh done by anyone at the company so that was exciting to me so even though I'm this lawyer labor negotiator I have a creative side I like to not creative in the sense of like artist necessarily but create things from scratch and so that was really appealing to me Mm -hmm. to build and create something so you did DEI at CBS for a few years, and then you started your own business, Right Size Media. So what influenced your decision to do your own thing? You know, I always have had this sort of entrepreneurial bug. 
mm-hmm. even while I was in labor relations, I started a side business um, oh. doing party planning and <laughs> working with candy nice. and sweets. Uh-huh. So again, that creative outlet. <laughs> that's, your, that's your simple oh, pleasure. Totally. I started, I, I created a candy truck. I literally <laughs> had like a mobile candy store or a candy what? store on wheels. I took a, a Sprinter van, had it like tricked out, gutted and like had, it was literally, it was, the business was called Sweetness and Delight and we would go to do private parties. We'd go to food truck oh, events nice. and we'd sell candy to people and cupcakes and stuff like that. So mm. I have always had and come from a family that mm-hmm. was entrepreneurial. Yeah. So the opportunity to say like, okay, doing something I love and am interested in with diversity and inclusion, could I do it on my own and work across the industry, different industries? Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the impetus behind that. Just wanting, I, I would, and I knew I would regret not trying. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself during these career changes? Any, anything that pops out? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm clearly a bit risk averse, mm-hmm. um, but every shift, every change has been no regrets, like maybe just a regret for not doing it sooner. But, <laughs> um, you know, really honestly, like such growth, both professionally and personally each time. And that, you know, you got to take a leap of faith. You got to um, bet on yourself a little bit and push yourself even when you're scared and it's so cliche like whatever that quote is about Mm -hmm. you know be fearful but do it anyway or whatever it is I really believe that like if you have some sort of desire or thought and it keeps coming back of something else you want to try or do like go for it yeah I heard somewhere I think it was like another podcast that if you hear an advice two or three times go for it. Like if someone says something like meditation, I hear everyone says talks about meditation or yoga. There must be something good about it. So I had to try it, you know? So um, if you hear that reoccurring theme, someone's telling you or you hear it somewhere, try it out. And that fear, again, it sounds somewhat cliche, but like, I think I always had that fear of failure. Um, Mm -hmm. So you stay in a comfortable position where, you know, you feel maybe you have the expertise or what have you, but knowing that you should be constantly learning something. And the only way to Mm -hmm. do that is to keep sort of pushing and challenging yourself. And what it did for me professionally, taking those risks also helped personally. Like it opened my eyes to a lot of different things, exposed and gave me access to a lot of different people that I would not have known that just, it kept opening door after door that I could have never even imagined. Right. Yeah. So, um, I do, it just, when you take those risks in one area, Mm -hmm. it gives you the strength in other areas of your life too. I think, Mm -hmm. I think earlier you said you are a risk adverse person. Mm -hmm. Are you typically risk adverse or only sometimes? Well, and maybe it's not even so much risk averse as it is. I'm not very impulsive. So um, I constantly am analyzing and thinking about things before I do it. And even when I'm talking in a group or something, like I'm constantly thinking like, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? How is it going to land? 
And that can be really great. And I think that's also the legal training that you're constantly analyzing. But sometimes it does hold you back and it um, mm-hmm. you don't feel as comfortable just like putting stuff out there, seeing how mm-hmm. it lands, experimenting mm-hmm. more. So I would push people who are risk averse or less spontaneous um, to push in that direction sometimes, you know? Yeah. I think there's yeah. pros and cons to being risk averse. Um but sometimes it holds you back. Earlier you talked about how like sometimes you're in a meeting, you're, you're analyzing things, you're thinking things. Do you ever analyze to the point where by the time you want to speak up, the, the next topic has already been started? Like you didn't get your opportunity to speak up because you were thinking about it too much? Does that yeah, happen? That yeah, that has happened for sure mm-hmm. throughout my career life. It doesn't happen as much now because I've, been in situations where I did overanalyze and think too much and the time passed Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. me to put my voice in, my opinion in. Um, So I try to just, I push myself constantly, even now, Mm -hmm. to just just say it. And so what's the worst that can happen? Like, they're like, oh, that's not really a good idea. Okay. I mean, how many times have you sat in meetings where people just throw out stuff and it's like, oh, no, I, we've, that, that won't really work or Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it's like, don't like, I always thought, oh, somebody's going to think less of you if you contribute, if you put something out there and it's not the perfect idea Mm -hmm. that, or the perfect question that they're going to run with it. But no, but maybe what you say, sometimes it is the perfect thing. Sometimes it gets somebody else thinking about the next perfect thing or yeah. great thing or other idea and you just build on it. That's collaboration, right? So yeah, without absolutely. your thought to sort of get it going, mm-hmm. you know, your organization, your company, your department may not end up with that next best idea. So I did it a lot. I do it less now. And I think part of that comes with confidence and experience and learning that it's not the end of the world if you don't mm-hmm. have the perfect thought. Yeah, yeah, I heard that um, a like a bad idea turns into a good idea, turns into a great idea, turns into an awesome idea. Just you gotta put it out there first, and it kind of builds from there through collaboration with other people. Um, so I used to be like someone who just was afraid to raise their hand. Like even in school, I remember it was fourth grade, I think, <laughs> and. Uh, I, I wanted to ask a question, but I was too afraid to ask the question just because I didn't like the spotlight. I didn't, yes. want to, I didn't want to ask a dumb question in front of class and people to judge me. And then finally, I had the courage to raise my hand. My heart was like pounding big time. <laughs> and then when my, when my teacher called on me, I started crying because I was like... <laughs> so nervous. Yeah, so nervous. So, um, you know, through time and experience, I've been better at that. I still get the pounding on my chest and like sweaty pits and hands when, yes. I, when I want to bring something up, especially if it's like executives in the room and whatnot. So how would you say someone who was like us can build that skill of just speaking up their idea? I know you said it comes through experience and stuff and just do it. Um, I don't know. Do you have any any other ideas of what they can do to kind of push them to speak up or what mindset they should have? Yeah, for me, I I realized and still in this way about preparation and um, I'm big on writing things down and um, 
practice. Mm-hmm. I literally some used to do this more than I do it now, but I used to sort of almost like practice mm-hmm. what I might want to say in a meeting that's coming up or role play with, you know, a trusted colleague, friend, partner, what have you. Um, and I, I would do it like that to get myself more comfortable, but I would write down questions. I'd write down comments to in the beginning so that I would feel more comfortable. Even if you have to, like, when you're in a meeting, you're hearing things and you're, like, writing down notes so that you can have something to refer to when it's your time to talk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also an appreciation. I think organizations, supervisors, managers are understanding better that everyone has a different way of communicating. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people need to have the agenda and the materials in advance and not just presented in the meeting. So as much as you, hopefully we create more inclusive work environments where people understand that it'll be better to deal with like people who are more introverted or who are not as comfortable speaking in, in, uh, staff meetings or different meetings but I did a lot of practice I do even now I write down bullet points constantly that's how my mind works Mm -hmm. about what I want to say um and you can't do it all the time it's sometimes you have you know more spontaneous meetings and things like that Mm -hmm. but um I think that for me worked a lot Mm -hmm. I agree just the practice the preparation is going to reduce your anxiety um and the role playing too like sometimes you you write something down and you think it in your head and like you talk about it in your head, but you haven't talked it out loud yet. Yes. Not, and not until you practice it and you hear what you sound like, do you actually get the, the um, preparation for it too. Yeah. So you talked about how you were in labor relations. You represented CBS many times in union negotiations. Um, what are your thoughts about unions in general? So for example, like growing up when I started my career, I started my career in the grocery retail industry and I was taught that unions are bad and, and you sh- we shouldn't have unions. They just take, you know, the employee's money. They don't even help the employee. The HR team is going to do much better, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so in my mind, I thought unions were a bad thing this whole time until like, you know, past few years when I learned more about the purpose of unions and whatnot. So just in general, what are your thoughts about unions? Well, I, you know started out my career, uh, or when I was in law school, I worked first for a law mm-hmm. firm that represented unions and plaintiffs mm. and employment cl- cases. Mm-hmm. I come from a family, both my dad and my mom were in unions. My sister is in one now. Oh. Um, so I have actually never been a member of a union, but I have, uh, you know, I see the, the purpose for sure of unions and support, you know, workers' rights and things like that. I think they create balance. Also, obviously spending a greater part of my career on the, quote, other side um, on management. I think it gave me an appreciation into just uh, creating, again, a work environment where people felt included, heard, Mm -hmm. um, and... I think I brought that into the negotiation process. So I Mm -hmm. I think unions are in many ways a good thing. It creates balance. um, And, you know, but don't get me wrong. Clearly, like I've had some battles like at the bargaining table uh, with unions, you know, representing management. But 
always a healthy respect, I think, for what they do um, and their purpose. And we, you know, currently right now represent, we work with the IATSE, which is the below the line union. We do DEI work with them. Oh, awesome. So um, as well as SAG-AFTRA, we've done some work yeah. with them. So definitely a supporter of um, and uh, appreciate their, their place mm-hmm. in the ecosystem. Yeah. Through, through my career, after working for some not so good companies, I've really realized, oh, that's when unions need to come in. Right. Um, when you are representing the company during a union negotiation, like what's your mindset? What's your goal out of that conversation? You know, it depends going in on each one, but I just think, you know, we clearly go in with certain mandates and goals. Um, but at the end of the day, we know there's an ongoing relationship with that group. So the idea is to leave people, we get something, they get something. Mm -hmm. We know we're not going to get everything. And we, you know, hopefully they understand on the other side of that equation that they're not either. So my goal is to kind of walk away feeling like uh, I didn't get everything because I want to leave a, uh, relationship intact because we will continue to work together day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to blow mm-hmm. it up, right? Yeah. Uh, you want to be respectful. So, you know, it's, it's not like buying a car. You can't <laughs> you, <laughs> buy a car. You're going to see that person probably once in your whole life. So you can right. be able to, yeah. okay, tough. Okay. But this is a long-term relationship. So you have to think about the yeah. lasting impact that your negotiation will make. Yeah, you don't want to extract every little thing that you can get out of people. That At least that's not my approach. There are some people mm-hmm. out there that may have that approach. Like, you have to get everything. I never had that because I knew all along the way there's these three-year deals where we have negotiations. But there's also deals and situations to be dealt with in the interim period. And Mm -hmm. the best negotiation to me is when you walk away from the table and everyone feels like, Oh, we didn't get something. Mm -hmm. We wish we we could have did not. We We wish that we got a little bit more because when you walk away, probably in my experience feeling like that was, Oh, we got everything. The other side is probably really angry (laughs) <laughs> and like okay. you know yeah. you don't want them coming back feeling like at the next time oh no we are like mm. we don't feel heard we mm-hmm. felt there's like some level of distrust or lack of credibility or whatever the case may be so you know it's like uh we we both walk away feeling like we we could have gotten a little bit more out of it uh-huh. and that's probably okay that's an interesting take on there because I, I always thought like negotiation both parties supposed to walk out like they won which yeah. In a way, they kind of won, but they still want a little more. And that's yeah. how you kind of keep that relationship. Catrice, knowing you after, what, the past four years or so, you have this very calm and kind demeanor. And I do not see you as someone who is, like, yelling during negotiation <laughs> and all that stuff. Like, how are you during negotiations in terms of your demeanor? Um, are you a different person behind closed doors or is this how yours are? I mean, I think like everything you bring in, the be- the best result is that you bring in your who you are to those situations. That's how I feel. Can I be more firm and 
uh, stronger in certain areas when I'm at the negotiating table, probably. But pretty much I'm the same because I I tried earlier in my career to be what I thought was mm-hmm. how you should negotiate and you come in this way. But it, actually, I wasn't very good when I was like that because I wasn't I, that wasn't who I am. That wasn't really my style. And mm-hmm. so some people, that's great because that's who they are. They like to come at, you know, very um, assertive as, and and and. and yeah, and, uh, you know, maybe yelling and all of that is part of <laughs> yeah. who they are, right? But that's yeah. just not who I am, so I can't even do that. It would look so crazy, right? Like, <laughs> um, or di- uh, inauthentic. Um, and I actually found I got better deals, um, had built better relationships once I could just be more of myself. Now, you know, sometimes you've heard that term, people should not mistake kindness for weakness. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. what I hope to show also is that you can be kind, like you said, hopefully. I take Mm -hmm. that as a compliment, so thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't mean that you're weak. And -hmm. you can still Mm -hmm. be very firm and direct and clear about what your goals are and what you need to achieve in a negotiation or your expectations. And hopefully people will appreciate that. And so there are moments probably over my career where I have been angry or mm-hmm. uh, felt like I needed to take it up a notch in order to like make certain points, but it has been rare. Um, and for the most part, I feel like I've been able to basically stay within my sort of range of yeah. what's comfortable for me. But yeah, sometimes yeah. people push you. You, yeah. go, <laughs> you. you go there every once in a while. You know, I've, yeah. had those, I've certainly had those moments, but uh, everyone deals with it differently. I get yeah. quiet, actually. You know how some people, when you're angry, can yell and scream? Yeah, I get actually get quiet. Ah, uh, that's, that's a powerful <laughs> tactic there <laughs> yes everyone has their yeah. tool or their go-to uh-huh. right it's just like communication styles you know there's some people who are talkers some people are quieter some people listen you know like all of those things so I think you have to find your in any situation negotiations is definitely it you have to find your approach yeah. your style yeah absolutely just basically be you be authentic it seems like if you're trying to be someone who you're not they can kind of see that totally and it, it doesn't really sell as much too so yeah i'm glad you were able to find your own style there so it seems like you've been very successful negotiating for companies negotiating for others um how about for yourself uh would you say that you're good at negotiating for yourself and why or why not so i'm better at it now as we sit here today, I'm a much better negotiator for myself. But interestingly enough, at many points in my career, I did not advocate for myself or negotiate for myself in the best possible way. Um, I, in fact, I will be the first to admit, because I feel like it's my duty to share this with people, is that mm-hmm. I you know, were offered employment contracts and different things like that and didn't negotiate really at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and took the first offer, um, which I tell everyone, do not do that. Um, mm-hmm. There's no harm in asking. The only thing you can hear is no. And I learned, mm-hmm. you know, my dad over the years had told me, if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm-hmm. And 
you have to, as an individual, be okay with that. And you have to get comfortable with asking and with the risk of being told no, or we can't do that right now. But if you never ask many times as an employer, a company, an organization, they are not always in the position of saying, here, let me offer you this. And so they expect almost that you're going to ask. And if you don't ask, it's not their responsibility to give something. So I learned that the hard way. And, um, but I did get more comfortable with asking. And part of that is like making sure you understand your own value and your own worth, which I'm sure many people have heard. But, and that's, again, it comes down to practice and it is uncomfortable and it is hard. I remember the first negotiation for myself that I asked and it was, it didn't go well. Like it wasn't, at least in my mind, because I was told like, oh, I, you know, you're asking for too much or, you know, so I started to think like, oh, did I like go too far beyond and asking for that dollar amount? But I did get more. I didn't get the exact thing that I asked for, but I got more than yeah. what they started out offering, you know? And so mm-hmm. you just, it again, it's something that takes time and practice and mm-hmm. it gets Maybe. better and easier. Mm-hmm. Do you get nervous before these negotiations? Like do you Every get, like, time. Sweaty hands and what, 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 like, what are some of your physical responses to anxiety? Do you, do you get sweaty? Do you get like heart pounding? I get my stomach is like a, I get that sort of butterflies in my stomach yeah? every time, uh-huh. whether it's a negotiation for mm-hmm. myself, whether mm-hmm. it's actually negotiating on behalf of, you know, other people, I get that a little bit sweaty, probably sometimes my voice initially, when I start talking for people who know me really well, could probably hear a change oh, yeah? and then it'll level okay. out. But yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely get physical manifestations of that anxiety and that nervousness. And at first it really I didn't lean into it and I would, it would make me even more nervous that I was feeling that way. But now I'm sort of, it's almost like my, my, uh, precursor, like nerves, like it's okay. Just acknowledge that kind of, and settle into it. I do like do deep breathing before just to sort of settle myself, whatever you can do. But a lot of it is just adrenaline because you don't know what's going to happen. You're anticipating what the other yeah. side is going to say or do. Yeah. But now I kind of look at it as like your game nerves, right? Like before you mm-hmm. are doing something that you really care about, that's just sort of what happens and sort of just getting comfortable being uncomfortable um, a little bit. And then it levels out. Usually from once yeah. I start, I'm usually Once okay. you start. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like no matter like – how much of an expert you are at something or how many years you've been doing this, you still get the nerves. Yeah. But it's all about managing those nerves once you get started too. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever told you, but um, when I was working at CBS uh, for, for a while, I was like, I should be getting a raise. I've been doing a lot. I've been adding a lot of value, but I just always hesitated until there was a time that you came to the CBS Interactive office in San Francisco, and you did a talk about negotiating for yourself. Oh. It, it like resonated with me so much. I was like, that's the sign. So like the next, the next day or two, I asked for a raise and kind of, you know, went back and forth with our manager and like finally got one, but, but uh, thank you yeah. oh, good. For, for that talk. So it, it, it motivated you. me to, to speak up for myself. So, And I think, um, you know, that makes me really happy because... 
I think we do need to talk about it more than a lot of us are comfortable with. Like it's always mm-hmm. been this thing like, oh, you don't talk about that. You don't talk about your salary. Yeah. You don't talk about yeah. money. But mm-hmm. with that approach, you also don't get comfortable talking about money when mm-hmm. you need to, when you need yeah. to ask for a raise and things like that, when you deserve it. Hi everyone, I wanted to take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about Feed Learning. Feed Learning is a learning and organizational development firm that helps build better teams by offering professional development training, coaching, instructional design, and consulting. We have a lot of great training courses such as communicating with empathy, presentation skills, and communication hacks. To learn more, check us out at feedlearning.com or follow us on LinkedIn to get free career development resources. Now back to the show with Catrice. Okay, so let's talk about diversity and then um, lightning round and then career advice. So we'll do these sections really quick. Um, So Catrice, I know what you look like, but for the listeners who have never seen you before, how would you describe yourself in terms of your race, ethnicity, gender, so on? So I'm a black woman. Gen Mm -hmm. Xer, grew up in Los Angeles, uh, still currently living in Los Angeles. Um, So those are some of of my identifiers. I would also say I'm an introvert, um, even though people are surprised by that. I hear that all Mm -hmm. the time. People say that. Do you feel stereotypes have been placed on you at work? Yeah, I think so. You know, particularly earlier in my career, I, I dealt with, I think, a generation, age uh, mm-hmm. sort of stereotype. And, you know, when you look back on certain situations, you don't know which of the things maybe are having the impact. So having mm-hmm. all those layers to me as a black woman who before <laughs> was younger um, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a, in a you know, department where I was one of the, the youngest, um, I think all those things sort of played in, I you know, I was newer to negotiations to the department I was going out on my own doing negotiations and I think you know having those moments where I would show up in cities where people would only have heard me over the phone and be kind of like oh are you here by yourself are you going to be the only one that's negotiating my contract you know like that Uh Um, so I think there was clearly some sort of bias or stereotype about who should be negotiating these contracts and I didn't fit that Certainly, Mm -hmm. all those different identities didn't match with the typical labor negotiator. And so I think I dealt with that. Sometimes it undermines, you know, your success potentially or Mm -hmm. maybe how you're going to be treated. Oftentimes uh, being, you know, am I surprised by that I'm a lawyer or surprised by I'm not the one supposed to be just taking notes, but it will actually be talking and negotiating the terms of the agreement, you know, so all Mm -hmm. of those different things kind of come into play being in rooms where people would look to my male colleagues, um, to lead Mm. certain conversations. And then they, the male male colleagues would turn to me and be like, you should be talking to her because she's the one that's going to be making the decision, (laughs) Uh right. About whatever Mm -hmm. we were talking about. So, you know, dealing with some of that throughout my career and now having some hindsight on it, in the moment, not even fully appreciating what was going on, the dynamics mm-hmm. there and just sort of pushing through it. But, um, yeah, so I look back definitely, um, mm-hmm. 
there was stereotyping going on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way, like just growing up throughout my career, even like in high school and um, living in a predominantly white town and whatnot, like going through what I did, I didn't feel stereotyped or discriminated against necessarily but sometimes I questioned why didn't I get this or why was I treated differently I didn't know it was discrimination mm -hmm. or may, it could possibly be but like in hindsight now that I'm learning about biases and stereotypes and privilege and all this stuff that hey maybe it did you know play a role and impact my career and my schooling and education mm -hmm. as well um, sure. yeah but a lot of times you don't know until in hindsight. Just very curious, what was it like growing up in your household? What were some values your parents instilled in you and so on? So, you know, like I mentioned, both my parents, you know, uh, were in unions, which I didn't even fully mm -hmm. appreciate until later in my career. But my dad was a police officer. My mom worked mm -hmm. for United Airlines. Um, the conversation, we did talk about race for sure. Um, mm -hmm. We talked about socioeconomic status. So a lot of those conversations I was very comfortable with growing up um, and I think served me well uh, in terms of the work that I do now when I think back on it. But mm -hmm. I got very comfortable talking about race, I think, early mm -hmm. on. Um, and, you know, and then even socioeconomic, both my parents were definitely came from working class. My family was working class uh, and appreciate going to, I, you know, at points in my life, lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, went to predominantly white schools for the most of mm -hmm. my education. So always sort of have this appreciation for different cultures, religions, mm -hmm. races, um, and our household, like my parents, family, and friends was always like all different types of people coming to holidays yeah. and like you never knew who was going to pop up uh, uh -huh. friends and family. So that was also a cool way to grow up. Um, so yeah, that was my, that mm -hmm. was definitely my background. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I kind of want to pivot to, to your business. You started your own business, Right Size Media. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about it? What's your mission goal? What does your company do? Yeah, I mean, we're really focused on creating those inclusive, nimble, safe uh, work environments from, and particularly we focus on entertainment and media and tech, um, but that could look like everything from having discussions and doing sort of strategy and advisory work with companies to talk about things like, what are your staff meetings look like? Um, mm -hmm. What kind of results are you getting? Is everyone contributing? Giving them advice about some of those things that they can do to to create more inclusive environments. Um, mm -hmm. We work on actual shows, both scripted and unscripted, in creating those environments and helping with both in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, are you allowed to tell us? Are you allowed to share with the shows? <laughs> um. <laughs> we have we've worked across several reality uh -huh. shows, I will say. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> and yeah, some of our clients, you know, we just we tend to be um, discreet about some of mm -hmm. the clients that we work with. But you know, and people bring us in for all reasons in terms of being proactive and strategic. Sometimes there's crisis management involved on some of them. Um, you know, who are trying to do better if they've stepped in it into some 
way, shape, or form. And it's about race. It's about gender. It's about sexual orientation. It's about Mm -hmm. um, socioeconomic, religious issues, um, all kinds of stuff. So it keeps us busy, keeps us on our toes. Uh, We do, you know, one of our real focuses is inclusive storytelling, particularly in entertainment and media. So um, figuring out ways to clearly get more representation in front of the camera but like what are those stories what are those the the characters really um how do they show up on camera so that's been interesting and a passion of mine yeah that's that's cool do you you typically work with like the crew behind the scenes or like the people who are actually on set it's both Uh, We've often interacted and done workshopping uh, about bias and privilege and microaggressions um, and stereotypes and tropes with both producers, uh, cast, um, and then at the crew level as well. Um, Because we, you know, part of it is what's the experience people are having working together Mm -hmm. on a set as well as what are people doing to help you know, develop characters, um, storyline for what you see on camera. So it's both. It's two different buckets. Um, yeah. So that's been, and you know, the kind of things that you talk about with a crew are very similar to what you would talk about to people from a bias, you know, dealing with bias in an mm-hmm. office setting. You know, they, mm-hmm. it's different things come up, different, but the concepts are the same. Like you have these preconceived notions about people that you bring into a workplace, whatever that looks like, and you respond and react in different ways to people because of that. And so what can yeah, you do absolutely. to disrupt mm-hmm. um, that bias? So Yeah. I find media representation so important. Like me growing up, the only Asians I really saw in media was the Yellow Ranger in Power Ranger. I think mm. she was Vietnamese. <laughs> and then, but she was always wearing like a mask and stuff. And then Destin Wynn from 21 Jump Street. I don't uh-huh. know if you ever watched that show. Yes. But like, those are the only Asians I saw on TV growing up. But nowadays when I'm watching TV, I'm watching like Sesame Street now with my daughter. Oh, yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing more people of color, more, more puppets of color. It's so awesome now. Yes. And it, it makes me happy as an Asian American to see more Asian representation in media. People who look like me. I said earlier I wanted to be a lawyer. I also wanted to be an actress when I was younger. Oh, you did? Okay. I, <laughs> I wanted to do so it. many things. Yeah. But it was like it seemed like the. Of course, being in being in Hollywood is tough as it is, but like I never saw people like me, so I didn't really see if that was I didn't find it as a place for me. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, um, the the work that you do and the the more people of color um, that we're seeing in media, I think it's inspiring for for a lot of people out there for the young ones too. Yeah, which is why I feel like entertainment and media is such an important and impactful platform, right? Mm -hmm. Because of all that for your daughter, my niece, like you Mm -hmm. want them to be able to see themselves some sort of representation because Gina Davis talks about if you can see it, you can be it. So Mm -hmm. not only it's, Mm -hmm. it helps in every way that, you know, it's aspirational for a lot of folks and, I just, it, it's so powerful. So I love Sesame Street, by the way. That is like, 
I think they have been always like ahead of the curve in so many ways in dealing with, you know, issues around race and sexual Mm -hmm. orientation and um, religion and different things. I mean, just a great, a great, great content that they bring. Yeah, I still find it very educational as an adult. So oh, yeah, <laughs> I, rec- totally. I recommend it to everyone. Yes. Um, so, so what is so you're working with a lot of businesses, companies, especially in the entertainment tech industry. What is one of the most important things companies need to know about the DEI initiative? Yeah, I mean, the way we think about it is there is no sort of template approach. Um, Mm -hmm. for a particular organization, company, department. Um, We, every company that we're finding, every client we have is in a different place on this journey. And Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people feel like, oh my goodness, we're behind. We should have been doing this. We should have been doing that. And our philosophy is really like, we'll start. And wherever you are is where you're at. And then let's how we can help move you forward um but everybody has different goals right like Mm -hmm. we don't tell you what your goals necessarily should be um but work with you to figure out like where you need to improve where you want to improve what kind of impact that you want to have what are your employees calling for um Mm -hmm. so yeah everyone is sort of or every place is in a different place on the journey um and we're there too. In some ways, people bring us in, you know, to hold them accountable for goals and targets that they have already set. And they need people to say, how can you help us get to those goals? So that's sometimes what it looks like. Others yeah. need us to help them benchmark and figure out where, what those goals should be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, it's different uh, for every one of our clients. Mm-hmm. I like how you said how it's everyone's on their own individual journey. It's like, and all you got to do, just start. That's the first thing you got to do is start, right? Yeah. Uh, you ready for a lightning round? Yeah. Okay. What was your very first job and how old were you? I think I was 14 and a half and it was at a boutique down the street from my house called Body Sense and I used to make lotions and gift baskets. What did you want to be when you grew up? A little bit of everything. I wanted to own a stationery store, and I wanted <laughs> to um, be an interviewer, like an Oprah Winfrey, but fascinated oh. always with like what you're doing today, mm-hmm. which is talking to yeah. people and asking them about their life and what's important uh-huh. to them. Yeah. Hey, we should collaborate sometime. <laughs> yeah. There we go. We'll interview other people. Yeah. Um, what college did you go to, and what was your major? So I went to Stanford University and I majored in American Studies with an emphasis in race and ethnicity. And then where did you get your JD? So JD I got my JD at UCLA. Uh-huh. Um, were you ever considered as a smart kid in class? Yes. Come on, Stanford, UCLA. <laughs> well, I don't I don't know actually if I was. No. I think there was I looked around always and thought like, oh my goodness, like I feel like I worked really hard in high school mm-hmm. and uh but I thought there was everyone else was smarter than me, you know, so it was yeah. competitive uh-huh. like that. What do you or did your parents do for work? So, yeah, my, my dad w- worked for LAPD and started his own business after he retired and then doing real estate primarily. And then my mom worked for United Airlines uh, as mm-hmm. a customer service agent. What did your parents want you to be when you grew up? My dad definitely wanted me to be a lawyer. 
Oh. <laughs> and my mom was kind of like, you could be whatever you want. If money wasn't an issue and you could be anything you wanted to be, what would it be? Maybe make documentaries. And okay. I go back to owning my stationery store and creating my own <laughs> line candy. of greeting cards. <laughs> Most famous celebrity you've ever met? I met Denzel Washington. Is he as handsome in person as he is? <laughs> he looks exactly this and he's got a great <laughs> smile. Favorite candy? Oh, that's such a hard choice, but I'll go with um, Twix and Seize Candy. Anything Seize Candy. Okay. Least favorite? Like payday or something, like nuts or co coconut. Nothing. <laughs> so almond joy, that would be my least favorite. What is something you wish you'd learned how to do? So, yes. And I wish I had continued to take piano lessons. Okay. Okay. Music is always important. So is fixing your pair of pants that ripped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. Career advice. What tips do you have for someone who wants to negotiate for themselves? Ask. Okay. Ask, ask, ask. Yeah, that's simple. simple. Yeah. Um, what advice would you have for someone who is risk adverse and maybe has been in the same job for the 20 years and too afraid to change? Um. If there is something, like we talked about, if there is something that continues to come up for you over and over again, whether it's in you, you keep thinking about it, or you start mm -hmm. to hear about it, like you mentioned, Jesse, from different people mm -hmm. and different sources, pursue it. Even just take mm -hmm. a class, start reading, do something outside of your day-to-day -to, -day to see if it's still something that is like a desire and burning. Mm -hmm. I just believe that if the desire stays with you, then you, you got to try. Yeah, absolutely. Or you're going to regret it. Yes. Um, lastly, any books, articles, resources you recommend? Well, I just read that book, The Vanishing Half, which mm -hmm. uh, is fiction, Great, great book. Really, it does have some DEI sort of topics that come up, but just well-written, fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the characters, some of it takes place in L.A., so that's always interesting to me. Um, and mm -hmm. New Orleans, which is another favorite city of mine. So um, it talks about a lot of the issues related to colorism and things like that mm -hmm. that we talk about. So highly recommend. Okay. And I'll, I'll add a link to that book in your show notes, too. Catrice, we're done. Thank you so much for oh, being a part you. of this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate and admire the work that you're doing. You're basically, you know, giving a voice and representing those who are unable to speak up for themselves sometimes. So thank you for your work in diversity, equity, inclusion. And I am looking forward to partnering with you in the future. Yes, thank you, Jesse. Uh, I love what you're doing. I love that you are so inquisitive and bringing to life first people like so that they can see slices of you know that they're not alone in this journey on yeah. like professional development and all of these yeah. things yeah it's very absolutely cool. proud of you no oh, thank you we'll we'll host a podcast in the future together <laughs> yeah love it sign me up so that wraps the show thanks again for listening to the feed learning people podcast if you want to learn more about Catrice and Right Size Media, check out her show notes on feedlearning.com backslash podcast. 
If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and follow us on LinkedIn for more career development resources. See you later. Bye.